You're listening to Over the Top, a great war podcast. That was a short clip from a violin piece called Schon Rasmarin, played by Fritz Kreisler, which is the reason for this episode. I'm going to roll back time back to the year 1914 for a biography episode. And because Fritz Kreisler's time in the Great War was short, this episode's probably going to be shorter than usual. Fritz Kreisler is one of the greatest violinists of all time. His memoir, Four Weeks in the Trenches, which was first published in 1915, is written about his memory of being on the front line for the Austrian army during the beginning of the Great War. Now, there's going to be two themes to this episode. First, obviously being Fritz's time in the Great War. Second, will be me going down a rabbit hole on amazing people lost and saved during the Great War. By now, I'm sure most of you know the Reaper claimed millions of souls during the war. And yes, every life lost did matter to somebody, but it also took from the world exceptional individuals and sometimes would even spare some. But before I get into that, I'll tell you what I'm drinking for this episode. I'm drinking a Moscow Mule. Just grab yourself a copper mug, top it with ice, then fill with two ounces of vodka, one bar spoon of simple syrup, a squeeze of half a lime, and then top with your favorite ginger beer, Stir and enjoy. Mm-hmm. That is good. Tell you what, folks. It's refreshing, especially when the weather starts warming up. Now, before I get into Mr. Chrysler, let me give you my quick motto on how I'm living my life at this stage in the game. I've been through a lot. A lot of good and a lot of bad. A lot of sorrows and a lot of smiles. And through all of this, what life has taught me outside of loving my family and friends is to appreciate the things that make the world a brighter place. Or better put, appreciate the people who've contributed to making this world better. I appreciate music, architecture, art, food, amazing cities, books, and the list goes on. And how are we graced with these things? From exceptional people like architects, painters, chefs, writers, musicians, and more. And yes, some of these people can be schooled to become great. However, I believe that certain people are brought into this world blessed with an exceptional talent, as if the world was also given a gift by having this person. Van Gogh was blessed with the talent to paint, just as Bo Jackson was blessed with athleticism as Ernest Hemingway was born with a gift to tell stories, just like Albert Einstein was born to think, and as Fritz Chrysler was born to play music. And you'll hear shortly how Chrysler made it home after his short period of service in the Great War. But right now I'm asking you if you could think about how many people didn't. And out of the estimated 15 to 25 million deaths, not casualties, but deaths, How many of those were brought into this world with a gift that went unseen? Just something to think about. That's it. 
On the last episode, I mentioned Ernst Younger's first experience at the front after arriving in Bazincourt. Him and his unit were put up in a schoolhouse in a chateau, and that next morning, as they were eating breakfast, they started being shelled by artillery. And the men went running out of the schoolhouse into the yard. And Ernst explains it that he thought this was cowardice at first. When he went out there to see what was going on, all of a sudden, a big shell came in and it came crashing down on him. Boom. I know. I know my sound effects are pretty weak. Actually, let me try that again. So a shell came in and that's more like it. That gives you the feeling. Well, this was his first experience of death. And he recalls seeing a music master laying there dead just in a pile with meat hanging off, limbs torn to pieces. And this really affected Ernst because he realized what the war was taking away from the world. Fritz Chrysler's real name was Friedrich Max Chrysler, born on the 2nd of February, 1875 in Vienna, Austria. He was of Jewish heritage, and even though he was baptized at the age of 12, he was forced to flee the Nazis in 1938 from Paris to the United States and eventually became a naturalized U.S. citizen in 1943. Also, at the age of 12, he competed in the Grand Prix de Rome in Paris along with 40 other individuals who were at least 20 years of age. The Grand Prix de Rome is an art scholarship established by Louis XIV in 1663. Fritz won. After winning, he toured the United States from 1888 to 1889, making his debut at Steinway Hall in New York City. After returning home to Vienna, he applied for a violin position at the Vienna Philharmonic, but was turned down by a music master. This hurt Chrysler deeply, so he left music to study medicine, after which he spent a short period of time in the army, but eventually returned to the violin in 1899 and joined the Berlin Philharmonic, after which he participated in a series of American tours from 1901 to 1903, which gained him some fame. His music career continued to build until the outbreak of the Great War, in which he was called back to the Army. And now, I'll go into Chrysler's experience of the Great War. He entered the war in 1914 and was out by 1915, which was also the same year he published the book. He first opens up with an explanation on why his memoir was so short. And the reason he explains comes from the hypnotical state of mind a person is in while on the firing lines in the trenches which can prevent the mind from observing things in a normal manner. He claimed this caused many blank spots in his memory, plus it never occurred to him to write a journal at the time or construct some solid memory, knowing he'd one day pass it along in a book. During my time in the army, unless I was oblivious to what was going on around me, I never noticed anybody actively writing a journal. But then again, most people would probably prefer to do this in private when the chance presents itself. I have to admit, I found it odd he didn't keep a journal during his time in the front. Chrysler was a well-educated man, and most well-educated men back in those days wrote journals. It would be common for them to keep some form of personal account on paper, especially during a time like this. Chrysler was in the reserves assigned to the 3rd Army Corps when war was declared on the 31st of July, 1914. On that day, he was on holiday with his wife in Switzerland. They immediately headed back to Vienna by way of Munich. 
When they arrived in Munich on the first day of the declaration, the streets were filled with excitement. People were cheering, hailing for victory. All traffic had been stopped, and only those who had a military purpose were allowed on the trains. He and his wife were given permission and arrived back in Vienna the next day. He then goes on to explain how much the city changed just in a matter of a few days after war was declared on Serbia. Thousands of reservists arrived by train to report for their duty. Bulletins and special newspaper editions were being passed hand-to-hand from the dense crowds in the street. But what stuck out the most to him was the coming together of all social classes. No angry disturbances. The differences had ceased literally overnight. Aristocrats, state officials, clergy, people with high titles were now mingling in the streets with the common folks. But of course, the soldiers were getting the attention. Everywhere they went in marching formations, crowds would gather to cheer. Chrysler and his wife went to a cafe where a young soldier and a newly wedded wife were getting a standing ovation. The young soldier broke out with the Austrian military hymn and the crowd joined in. This was the time when everyone was cheering on the soldiers, sending the boys and men off to prove their bravado for their country. This is also when soldiers were smiling, not knowing what laid ahead. And remember who was also celebrating in the streets when war was declared, calling it a blessing? I spoke about this in an earlier episode, a man who the war had molded into a madman which fueled his hate through the remainder of his life, a cold-hearted man with a funny little moustache. Chrysler barely had enough time to say farewell to his father before reporting to his regiment in Leoben, the southern part of Austria. There he was commissioned with his own platoon consisting of 55 men, two buglers, and four medics. Among the men in his platoon were a painter, two college professors, a highly respected singer, a banker, and a post office official of high rank. Among the other officers in his battalion were a famous sculptor, a well-known philologist, two university professors, one in mathematics and one in natural science, a prince, and a civil engineer. The surgeon of the battalion was the head of a major medical institution who was well-known internationally in the medical field. But at this point, He claimed nobody cared who did what anymore, and now they had a brotherhood. But to the rest of the world, these were important people the war took away, and most didn't ever return. His regiment immediately received orders to head for the front. They traveled to Galicia via Budapest. The train stopped at Stryj, an important train station south of Lemberg, which is now part of Ukraine. Upon arriving, the only reports they were getting was the Russian soldiers had been driven back and the Austrian soldiers now had their boots on enemy ground. Speaking of boots, surprise to them, that night after stepping off the train, they stepped out into a 20-mile road march. Now think about this. Think about the type of men that were described as being part of his regiment. They aren't everyday soldiers. They weren't active military training for this. This regiment's purpose was to serve at home. Now they were being hauled off to the front, just like active soldiers. And people will debate, well, reserves should be ready at any time. And that's true to today's standards to a certain degree. But even today, when a reserve unit is called up to deploy, they immediately jump into, I believe, a 30 to 60 day training period. I'm not positive on the time, but for the purpose of getting them trained up and prepared. These fellows weren't prepared for a 20-mile march with full equipment. You can't just jump right into it. I haven't been a runner for some years now. I wouldn't just jump into a marathon. Shoot, 
I wouldn't even jump into a half marathon. It wouldn't be good. And the equipment they carried was the following. Heavy rifle and bayonet, ammunition, a spade, and a knapsack that contained provisions such as tinned meats, coffee, sugar, salt, rice, biscuits, cooking and eating utensils, and other things they needed for the war. In a previous episode, I talked about gun teams carrying spare parts, ammunition, etc. This immediately became a test of endurance for these men. I've done quite a few 20-mile road marches during my time. I've done several even more than 20 miles, and with no less than probably 85 pounds on my back. But I was in shape. I was ready for them. My feet and body were conditioned, and my boots were broken in. These poor guys were in a world of pain from their toes to their shoulders. This went on for a couple days. They would march, stop, and make camp, awake, march again, repeat the process until they reached the objective point. And on that day, they had been marching for about three hours when they heard in the distance something that sounded like continuous thunder. But we all know this wasn't thunder they were hearing. What they heard was distant artillery coming closer and closer. The men were halted and all the officers were summoned by the colonel. He said, Gentlemen, I have good news. Today, you may meet the enemy. I hope to lead you to the fight before evening. When Chrysler and the other officers notified their men of the news, suddenly the swollen aches and pains seemed to disappear. Now there was the spirit to fight and the excitement. All the pain suddenly magically went away. Orders were given to load rifles and head for the one line in an open formation. A few kilometers into the woods, they began to notice a number of ringlet clouds of smoke. Most of the men took no notice to any danger because they weren't familiar with this. Yet Chrysler and the other officers knew this was shrapnel exploding in midair. His heart began beating faster. Then the rounds started buzzing over their heads and began to hit the men moving in the rear. The Russians were dialing in on their position. Finally, a shell bursted right in front of his men, sending steel fragments in all directions. A man to his right, about 20 yards away, was lifted off his feet with an agonizing cry, then dropped back down to the earth, mortally wounding him. The rounds were finding their mark. More and more kept coming. The men began to run. Then they would drop immediately when they heard the word drop. After the explosion, they would get up and repeat the process. They continued to play the get up, get down game for about a half a mile. And think about the adrenaline rush and what it did to them. Fighters call this adrenaline dump. After releasing too much at the start, then they quickly get gassed out. This was the men's first experience. I'm sure the adrenaline levels were at a high. Finally, they heard a motorized buzzing noise above them. They looked up and spotted a Russian plane circling from above. Spotting for its gunners, then they realized why the rounds were hitting the target so effectively. Eventually, men from the rear opened fire on the plane, forcing it away. And this was about the same time when their own artillery had rolled up and began its counter-firing, which drew the Russian guns away from the soldiers to their own guns. They resumed their movement, Finally reaching the, their objective on the Galician front, they were ordered to dig trenches. Further advancement had ceased. Now, this next part from his memory is really cool. 
because Chrysler was such a talented musician, he had exceptional hearing that could hear sounds most people wouldn't be able to pick up on. One day, he began to notice a remarkable discrepancy in the peculiar whine produced by the different artillery shells in their flight overhead. Some sounded shrill, while others sounded dull. He concluded that shells which are ascending made a dull sound, then after passing the acme point and the arch goes down, it turned into a shrill sound. And I'm sure most of you know in a parabolic arch, like the trajectory of an artillery shell, the acme is the highest point that breaks the ascending and the descending, which makes sense why there would be two different sounds. He explained this to an artillery officer and said he could determine by the sound the exact place where the shell was coming from by opposing guns determined by the acme, and this would help to locate the enemy artillery. He pointed on a map the location, and he was told later on that by doing this, it gave the Austrian gunners an almost exact location of the Russian guns, which resulted in their own effect of fire. He claimed his musical ear became of value during his period in the service. I would agree with him. I have to say this was my favorite part. I just think it's really cool how people's talents come into play. I know people who had a natural talent to shoot any weapon with bullseye accuracy. I know people who could really hurt your feelings if you decided to throw fisticuffs with them. I knew a man who would drink Diet Pepsi all day while smoking cigarettes then run 11 miles at a sprinting pace the whole damn time. Not kidding, I seen a grown man crap himself during that 11 miles. It was no joke. I knew guys who could take a water chew, chewing tobacco, and never spit. I mean, what the hell? Where's it going? I, I don't understand. What I'm saying is, I've been around people with certain talents that brought a unique character to the units I was assigned to. And Chrysler's unique talent was pretty damn cool and was extremely useful for the situation. If there's any mortar or artillery guys listening to this, I'm sure you'll appreciate his memory from this part. And that guy who ran the supersonic 11 miles, he was my first sergeant. We nicknamed him the Dragon. I'm not kidding. He was a madman. If there was an unscheduled first sergeant PT on Monday morning, you knew somebody severely effed up over the weekend. Whether it was somebody getting arrested on River Street in Savannah, or some girl went into the barracks and broke a bottle over a guy's head. Whatever the case was, we knew he was pissed off and was going to make us pay. I wised up quickly when I was a private to never drink on Sundays. In fact, through my whole time in service, I only drank on Fridays and Saturdays. Sundays for sure was designated for water and recoup. Anywho, Chrysler then goes on to describe his first experience of death. It occurred right next to him during our, an artillery bombardment. He said, quote, The most difficult part was to lie still and motionless while death was being dealt all about us. And it was then and there that I had my first experience of seeing death next to me. A soldier of my platoon, while digging in the trench, suddenly leaned back began to cough like an old man, a little blood broke from his lips, and he crumpled together in a heap and lay quite still. I could not realize that this was the end, for his eyes were wide open and his face wore a stamp of complete serenity. Apparently, he had not suffered at all. The man had been a favorite with all his fellows because of his good humor, and that he was now stretched out dead seemed unbelievable. I saw a great many men die afterwards, some suffering horribly, but I don't recall any death that affected me quite so much as that of the first victim in my platoon." End quote. Now, 
Because Chrysler only spent about four weeks on the front and he didn't use specific dates, his next memory, I'm going to assume he's probably around two weeks into his experience. An artillery duel ensued between the two armies. By the afternoon, the nonstop explosions after explosions began to weigh on the soldiers' nerves. Feeling at a low point, they suddenly noticed a dark line coming toward them at a rapid pace. Taking a closer look through the binoculars, Chrysler realized it was Russian cavalry headed straight for them. He turned towards the regiment's colonel for his reaction. The colonel didn't seem worried about this bold maneuver by the Cossacks because, to his knowledge, no cavalry stands a chance against a well-disciplined infantry. The Austrian soldiers began to shout with joy. To them, this meant they finally get to meet the enemy face-to-face, head-on. They were ready. It was about to go down. Fingers on the trigger, just waiting for the word to start firing. But suddenly the cavalry came to a halt and began to disperse left and right, exposing the advancing infantry behind them. One line of Russians would rush forward, get down, and start shooting at the Austrians so another line behind them could advance forward. A tactical move so everyone wouldn't be advancing in one mass, making themselves a big target for the Austrian guns. And the situation for Chrysler and his regiment didn't improve when they suddenly noticed that damn Russian airplane circling above them again. And what came next? Accurate artillery fire. If that wasn't enough, the plane started dropping its own bombs at them. But Chrysler claims that didn't do any real damage. I guess when you have an infantry advancing and firing on you, along with effective artillery bursts. Hell, what's a couple small bombs from a plane going to do at that point? The Russians seemed to be doing damage up until the advancing infantry ran right into the Austrian wire that sappers had laid. The Cossacks were halted, and the Austrians opened up with rifle and machine gun fire. The first wave of Russians were completely obliterated. The bullets swept across, tearing into the flesh and skull. The dead and wounded were piling up. The next wave of attack came with a greater force and a new tool, wire snippers. However, even with these new snippers and men using dead soldiers as planks to get across the wire, artillery, and plane dropping bombs, the Austrians succeeded in holding this attack off until unleashing a flanking maneuver which caught the Russians by surprise and forced them to pull back. Chrysler claimed that even with the lack of sleep and food, this battle showed the strength and endurance the men had. Chrysler then spoke of the aftermath, saying, quote, The Russians had left many dead on the field and at the barbed wire entanglements. Their bodies lay heaped upon each other. We could see the small Red Cross parties in the field climbing over the horribly grotesque Tumilia bodies trying to disentangle the wounded from the dead and administer field aid to them. Enthusiasm seemed suddenly to disappear before the terrible spectacle. Life that only a few hours before had glowed with enthusiasm and exultation. Suddenly paled and sickened. The silence of the night was interrupted only by the low moaning of the wounded that came regularly to us. It was hideous in its terrible monotony. These grotesque piles of human bodies seem like a monstrous sacrificial offering immolated on the altar of some fiendishly cruel antique deity. End quote. The last memory I'll cover from Chrysler's memoir is what we would be known as the Great Retreat of the Austrian Army. 
the Russians greatly outnumbered them and left them no choice but to retreat. Where the Austrians took such heavy casualties during this time was from the forces left to guard the rear. Fritz's regiment was of course assigned to this task and refers to this time as depressing days for his troops. The men moved with their heads hung low, ashamed, and humiliated by the decision to retreat. Also, provisions such as food for these rear soldiers were becoming rare. Most of the provisions had been moved to the front of the retreating party to be put on trains and moved safely away from the Russians taking them. Chrysler claimed he and his men were at one point starving. They went three days without any food and had to lick the dew from the morning grass to wet their lips. An anger builds inside a person when treated like an animal left with no food or water, just like a poor, deprived, chained-up dog becomes vicious when treated cruelly by its owner. You become numb to the outside world that you once existed in. All you know is to fight and eat when the chance presents itself. Men would be eating scraps of food in a makeshift trench with not even the faintest thought of bothering that a dead body was lying next to them while they were eating. By September 6, they pulled back to Grodek, south of Lemberg. The Russians had established a number of trenches by this point, one of them being right across from Chrysler's platoon. Now, he claimed this opposing trench was about 500 yards away. I don't know if that's accurate because that's the distance of five football fields. And the reason I'm questioning this is because he claimed that the Russians and his men would talk to each other between the trenches. I just don't see that being possible, especially after several weeks of nonstop artillery shelling and machine guns and rifle fire. Their hearing must have been shot. Even if they were shouting, I, I don't see it possible from that distance. But I'm not a battlefield investigator. I just thought this was odd, and I believe they were a lot closer than 500 yards away. But we'll never know. He then claimed over the next few days after pulling back to Grodek, the hatred on both sides seemed to disappear. One soldier from his platoon walked out into the middle of the trenches to meet a Russian where they exchanged provisions such as tobacco for food. It was like the two men had their own version of the Christmas truce. There seemed to be an understanding at that point in time that this wasn't a war between the common people from both sides. Rather, they were fighting in a war created by the aristocrats from their countries over greed and power. But eventually, those kind gestures of being human again would quickly fade away. Several days after a brave runner who managed to escape the enemy machine guns brought word their positions were to be abandoned and to evacuate the trenches under the cover of darkness at 2300 hours, 11 p.m. However, by this time, the Russians had realized just how bad a state the rear of the Austrians were in and the lack of ammunition they had. So they launched an attack before the men could abandon the trench for good. Chrysler explains how his final night in the trench took place, saying, quote, The Russians by this time evidently had realized our defenseless conditions and utter lack of ammunition. For that same night, we heard two shots ring out, being from our sentinels that danger was near. I hardly had time to draw my sword, to grasp my revolver with my left hand, and issue a command to my men to hold their bayonets in readiness when we heard a trampling of horses and saw dark figures swooping down upon us. My next sensation was a crushing pain in my shoulder, struck by the hoof of a horse, and a sharp knife pain in my right thigh. I fired my revolver at the hazy figure above me, 
saw it topple over and then lost consciousness. Upon coming to my senses, I found my faithful orderly kneeling by my side. End quote. Chrysler's orderly had told him upon seeing the cavalry, all the men abandoned the trench and fled. Once realizing that Fritz was missing, he returned to the trench to search for him. After finding him, he gave him first aid. Then with great difficulty, helped him out of the trench, and after several hours of carefully eluding the Russians, they finally reached an Austrian outpost. He eventually would be put on a Red Cross train to Vienna, where he would be reunited with his wife, who had volunteered as a nurse. In November, after being seen by a mixed commission of army surgeons and senior officers, he was declared physically unfit for duty at the front and was exempt from any further service. And I'll read his last statement from his memoir. It says, quote, My military experience ended there, and with deep regret I bade goodbye to my loyal brother officers, comrades, and faithful orderly, and discarded my well-beloved uniform for the nondiscreet garb of the civilian, grateful that I had been permitted to be of any, if ever so little, service to my fatherland, end quote. Fritz Chrysler went on to live a successful life building his music legacy. He wrote a number of famous pieces for the violin. He wrote several operettas like Apple Blossoms in 1919 and Sissy in 1932. He wrote the music for the 1936 movie The King Steps Out and much, much more. He died in 1962 at the age of 86 from a heart condition while living in New York City. He's buried in a private mausoleum at the Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx, New York. And I'm going to start wrapping this episode up right here. I hope you enjoyed it, and hopefully this inspired you to read his memoir from the war titled Four Weeks in the Trenches. There's much more to his book than what I covered. And also, this is going to be this episode's Great War Recommendation. On the next episode, I'll be taking us back to 1915 for the start of the Dardanelles campaign, better known as Gallipoli. Thank you for listening and thank you for your continued support. I'm on Instagram at OTTGW podcast and on Facebook. You can find the show on multiple podcast platforms. And of course, you can find the show on my website at www.ottgwpodcast.com. If you could, please leave me a review. Till the next episode, take care, everyone. Thank you.